This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Welcome to both of you. Thank you. Thank you. And um, I thought that it would be useful to start out by uh, explaining to everybody what glucocorticoids are. And what are they used for, Sherwood? Well, glucocorticoids are medications or hormones that act on the glucocorticoid receptor. And they get their name from the, the glue comes from glucose because of their effects on glucose metabolism. And the cort, because cortisol, which is the glucocorticoid made by the human body, is made in the adrenal cortex. Yes. And oid, because they share along with testosterone and estrogen a chemical structure known as the steroid nucleus. And they're used for a wide variety of uh, different uh, disorders. Some common examples of glucocorticoids would be prednisone. And uh, more widely used in Europe, it's active metabolite prednisolone, dexamethasone, and cortisone. And they're given orally an IV, and also uh, topically and uh, as inhaled or uh, steroid sprays. Do, what, what are some of the uh, conditions, disease conditions, that these, uh, I call them steroids, are used for? Mm-hmm. Well, they're used for a variety of conditions because of their ability to suppress the immune system and for their anti-inflammatory properties. They're used for asthma and other lung diseases, a variety of allergic reactions, poison ivy, skin conditions, rheumatic disorders such as rheumatoid arthritis or lupus. And they're also used in transplant patients to uh, prevent rejection along with other medications. I also heard it was used for Bell's palsy and that kind of thing. So it's a wide... There wide, are wide uh, many, many medical conditions for which it's used. It was uh, brought into the field basically in 1950, and uh, uh, Dr. Hench won the Nobel Prize for introducing it and showing how glucocorticoids work in the treatment of rheumatoid arthritis, whereas nothing really had worked in it before. And uh, as time has gone on, more and more uses uh, have been found. So it is a very commonly prescribed. Uh, there are 44 million individual prescriptions written in the United States every year. Uh, and, um, and that is for oral uh, glucocorticoids. And uh, that is only a drop in the bucket of what is being used internationally, worldwide. Well, this has been originally uh, uh, organized in in our efforts, sponsored by the Diana Foundation. And let me ask you, Nick, uh, why is the Diana Foundation interested in glucocorticoids? The Diana Foundation was founded in 2004 to sponsor colloquia and symposia conferences uh, around gender differences in pain management in women 
and research into the potentially negative public health consequences of steroid-based therapies, including high-dose therapies, which is particular Mm -hmm. of interest to us. We sponsored two conferences on pain management in women and the gender differences in delivery of pain management to women with the UCSD School of Medicine, co-sponsored with the Department of Psychiatry, and then two colloquia with international researchers from around the world convened under the auspices of the Department of Psychiatry and the School of Medicine here to focus on glucocorticoids and mood. This has a personal interest to me. My late wife, Diana, uh, took her life uh, committing suicide in 2003 following a high-dose steroid treatment, which the neurologist characterized as a steroid blast, uh, comprised of uh, a dexamethasone treatment tapered over four days, starting with 36 milligrams of of, uh, dexamethasone, tapered down to four milligrams day four. And day four, Diana experienced a a psychotic episode uh, and uh, never, never recovered, Uh, went into a deep depression, which was then treated by a psychiatrist who was not in touch with a neurologist who prescribed a dexamethasone, and she prescribed um, uh, 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 antidepressant, which is counterindicated in steroid-induced psychosis, which we've learned through our research here with you, Lou, and Sherwood. Uh, There's a lot of new research that's come out that talks about how uh, we address steroid-induced psychosis, uh, how to prophylactically uh, uh, attend to it during the treatment. For example, in Diana's case, lithium was prescribed in low doses to treat mania, Uh, The neurologist was very clear about that, but it turns out in our research that uh, there are gender differences in in the efficacy of lithium as a prophylactic in in steroid-induced psychosis, uh, resulting uh, in a more uh, effective treatment for mania in male patients, where women uh, tend to have uh, depression. Uh, they, They sort of bifurcate in those two those two ways, and we've learned this in our in our research. So this is a personal interest to me, yeah. and my family and I, my children in particular, uh, hope that through this effort of the Diana Foundation, through the colloquia, through this conversation we're having today, that we educate clinicians, patients, their families, and public health officials to the potential negative consequences of steroid-based therapies. Yes. Well, I think now we could uh, turn to the paper itself. This is the end result of a collaboration between Mr. Binkley and I, the Diana Foundation, and the Department of Psychiatry at UCSD. Uh, Initially, we felt it was time to do a state of the science for glucocorticoids. And sure, do you want to uh, share with us some of the findings from the uh, conference? Sure. Um, well, the mood effects were, were, were discussed at, at length in the review, and they're highly variable. They uh, include depression, mania, 
sometimes a mixture of manic and depressive symptoms at the same time, something like a mixed state of bipolar disorder. There's also anxiety symptoms are, are fairly common as well. Some people have psychosis where they hear voices or see things that aren't there, perhaps have delusional beliefs. And even uh, suicide, the risk is greatly increased during glucocorticoid therapy. Uh, yes. one, one large study suggested a seven-fold increase in right. suicide attempt or completion risk with right. these medications. And there are also cognitive effects, or particularly on mem- effects on memory, that may be more common than the mood effects. So, yes. Uh, there have been many studies suggesting the memory effects, which implicate the hippocampus and other brain regions yeah. that are known to be sensitive to glucocorticoids. But there are also many reports of more global changes in cognition as well, where they can appear like a dementia or a delirium, uh, where there's confusion and uh, disorientation and uh, a much broader change in cognitive functioning than just memory. Yes. One of the statistics that jumped out to me showed in in our research was out of this study and I believe it came out of the UK, was that 70% of all patients on extended glucocorticoid uh, therapies experienced some measurable cognitive impairment. It does appear that the cognitive changes are even more common than the mood changes. And uh, there have been many studies also in healthy controls uh, looking at the effects on memory. And it seems to be a fairly uh, consistent finding that there will be, even with a single dose of these medications, a decline in memory, which uh, is certainly in the short-term reversible. We don't really know the long-term effects. Could we talk also about how you reverse the, the you know, steroid-induced psychosis and sort of understand <laughs> what are the yeah. modalities for reversing it and, you know, what do you do? There's not that much known about treatment, unfortunately. It, it does appear that the, the symptoms, both the cognitive and the mood symptoms and others, are dose-dependent. So the higher the dose of the glucocorticoid, the greater the risk of these symptoms. So in terms of management, one, if it's clinically feasible, uh, an option is to either lower the dose or discontinue the medication altogether. So that would be the uh, preferred and first-line option if, if it's possible. There's a more limited literature on possible treatments that might prevent or reverse the effects. And um, the mood effects of mania and depression are a lot like those of bipolar disorder. And it, uh, the information we know seems to suggest that medications that work for bipolar disorder, such as lithium, perhaps valproic acid, and some of the newer atypical antipsychotics may be helpful in either preventing or treating the effects on mood. The cognitive effects, there's... Um, we have looked at medications that seem to block the cognitive effects or the effects of glucocorticoids on the hippocampus and animal models, and these have focused on things that decrease uh, a neurotransmitter called glutamate. Um, 
and uh, those are medications such as lamotrigine, mimentine, and phenytoin. And uh, the data look promising with those medications in terms of preventing or reversing the memory changes. Is there a higher incidence of being at risk for older, uh, older patients or women? There is a definite women? age effect. Very young children on the age of six and people over 65 are much more susceptible to uh, uh, dysregulation of mood and uh, uh, delirium and uh, the so-called steroid dementia. Dose is related. Gender, women are more affected than men. And um, age. In the uh, Cambridge collaborative study, they indicated that women uh, were, were much more susceptible, particularly in their perimenopausal, menopausal years, which I guess that's age plus gender differences yeah. sort of compounding. The numbers that came out of that study were 18.4% for high-dose steroid treatments. There was induced psychosis of 18.4%. 5 to 7% of those never recovered. And there's an interesting example of this in Jane Pauley, the anchor person who uh, has written a book called Skywriting, where she talks about having a high-dose steroid treatment for a skin disease. Neurologist gave her the high-dose tapered steroid, uh, pregnazone, and uh, it induced a bipolar condition, which she's now living with for the rest of her life. Uh, 3% of the 18% successfully commit suicide, but they noted that there was potentially a doubling of the 18% to as high as 36% for women in their perimenopausal years on high-dose steroids. That's alarming. It's alarming in itself, and and uh, one of the reasons I think the Diana Foundation is is involved in this is that we believe we believe here, and also in our in our extended research group, that there's a public health uh, issue that needs to be addressed. Well, that's what we're all about, isn't it? Yes. Yeah, you know, uh, we're. Uh, you know, I would recommend uh, uh, people to uh, read the. Uh, the paper. Uh, it's uh, published on the website of uh, the uh, journal, the American, American journal. journal of Psychiatry. And uh, there are a lot of little facts in it that are useful. But I think it's particularly interesting for people to read the patient vignette. So often you uh, see them in a paper and you tend to discount them. This patient experienced everything that we talked about within uh, hours of taking the first high dose of prednisone. And she uh, went through uh, several courses of glucocorticoids and, uh, had, and had a lot of uh, disorganization and disruption of her thinking. Even to this day, she says that there are pieces of her clarity and certainty of thinking right. that are missing. When she talked about her sort of disassociation, 
yeah. that was going on cognitively and with her mood reminded me of something Diana said in the last couple of weeks of her life. She said, I feel like Humpty Dumpty and I can't get myself back together again. Uh-huh. There was such a compelling image and that that image uh, of what she said reminded me of your of the vignette of this woman story. And one of the things we we offer are on our website of the Diana Foundation is a tell your story. And we will, of course, receive the stories and review them for authenticity. And we have a couple stories on the website now of patients telling their own stories. And the vignette, which is in our paper here with the yes. American Journal of Psychiatry, is one of those stories, which is important. And, you know, the thing that is striking is that everybody talks the same who has a negative experience with glucocorticoids. It happens suddenly, happens out of the blue. It is uh, very frightening, frightening to the patient, frightening to their family. And that um, you, you can ameliorate it by reducing the dose or, taking, or taping someone off. Or treating it. We keep sort of uh, expressing surprise. Last night you mentioned a colleague at University of Texas that, that had uh, literally called you from, quote, lockup, yeah. saying, uh, I, I'm, I'm, I'm here uh, temporarily because of a manic reaction to steroid-based therapy. Uh, I have friends here in this town who are doctors who have had the same reaction and told me about it after Diana's experience. And it's more common, uh, and that's part of our effort here, is to have people tell their story, uh, come out with it. Uh, don't just talk to the FDA. Uh, talk to your doctors, talk to your neurologists, talk to your families. And in the case of your colleague at UT, he was he went into a... Uh, went into an acute care facility for a short period of time for observation and to protect himself from himself. That's what we should have done with Diana at the time. It was not recommended by the neurologist. Uh, and and uh, as we all know, suicide is a permanent solution to a temporary condition. And this, is a, this, can't, this should be a very temporary condition. It should be a 72-hour, 48-hour, maybe a week condition that if we really monitor the patient, both from the clinician's point of view and from the family, and get enough information out to people when they take these, take these drugs, that, uh, that we will avoid the pain and the suffering that can come from an unintended consequence of an otherwise very effective uh, drug. I think what would be particularly helpful would be if we could understand better who's, who's at risk because other than dose, it's uh, not very clear and they are potentially life-saving medications for some medical conditions, but they do have uh, bad side effects in some people. Yeah, I mean, that to me is the, uh, if, there, if you look at the public policy implications of this subject, uh, uh, Putting uh, funding uh, research into 
better predictors of who is most at risk is a key is a key public policy sort of recommendation. The other couple recommendations are that I believe the high high dose steroid treatment should be black boxed by the FDA. Nick, you mentioned uh, the word black box. What do you mean by it? The black line indentation around the prescription that requires FDA requires that there is a whole lot more conversation and discussion between the patient and the doctor. This is not something that a patient can call in and say, you know, I want a high dose steroid treatment because I've got a I've got Bell's palsy or something. This requires a meeting with the doctor, a a, a, a diagnosis, a, a running through the history of the patient for what I would consider uh, vulnerabilities for mood disorder, and uh, and a lot more conversation, and it's required as opposed to being uh, voluntary. Another policy recommendation would be that there's a lot more education for clinicians, patients, families, public health officials about this whole subject, but in particular, really doing a a serious patient profile before administering a high-dose drug, or as our neurologist said, a steroid blast. That doesn't happen. Yeah, it doesn't happen enough. It did not happen in our situation. We did not have we did not I, have in, that. Uh, in any copy. of these vignettes that I've been exposed to, the patient was not told that you might experience a very very rocky you know, ride. Yeah. What is disturbing to me is the lack of real uh, conversation and and professional coordination between neurologists, rheumatologists, and the psychiatry profession. And to team this, just like you would team a ca- cancer, where you have, a, you have a chemotherapist, a surgeon, a radiologist, you team the, the, the issue. And when you're dealing with a, with a drug that is as powerful as a high-dose steroid treatment for a life-threatening situation, you would think that you would have, you know, reach out to the other professions to team it. Well, we have recommended this repeatedly, that uh, before people go on to steroids, that they're, that they're told in detail what they possibly could experience. Right. And that, uh, uh, that it would be wise to have a psychiatrist a part of the team so you can turn to them and say, you know, what should we do? about this. Because when it happens, it happens. It's very scary. Very scary. Suddenly, if a, someone that you know is saying that they see someone sneaking around in the house, well, that's not true, you know? Right. Well, I mean, the, this, this subject that we're discussing here um, is uh, also reminds me of the, uh, when we talk about gender differences in delivery of medicine and yeah. and really recognizing that women are not just small men, that they have very different chemistry than men, and that for 25 years, 
Between 1968 and 1993, the FDA prohibited women from clinical trials in the United States. Now, I guarantee you that half of the people who are watching this have absolutely no transparency to that fact, none. And I bet you it's a lot higher than 50%. Um, what, what that means is that the drugs that were approved in that 25-year period were approved on clinical trials which were exclusively uh, 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 male patients. Yeah. And all the side effects are exclusively male side effects. And recently on uh, CBS's uh, 60 Minutes, they talked about Ambien. And, and following that report, the FDA issued a, a, a recommendation that Ambien, the dose, dosage of Ambien should be cut in half for women. Well, I, I'm not certain when Ambien was, uh, what, when it was discovered, but a lot of these drugs that were discovered in that 25-year period are in the generic mainstream now. They've come off patent, and they're just in the generic mainstream of, in, the drug, in the pharmaceutical industry. Since 1993, NIH has required that females uh, be part of the clinical trials, yeah. and the FDA has, re- has now suggested and recommended that women be part of clinical trials. And there's people say, well, why was that? Why, why were women excluded? Well, it had to do with the thalidomide disaster in the 1960s, um, childbearing women. And they just said, no more childbearing women involved in these, uh, in these clinical trials. So, Well, I think um, some take-home points perhaps for clinicians would be to uh, discuss the possibility of these side effects with, with patients. Yeah. And uh, so they're aware of it, and perhaps the tendency for patients to not discuss these with the physician might be... Uh, uh, decreased if yeah. they knew they were the, not the only person who gets these side effects. Right. We're trying to get this out to everybody. I think this is a good start. This is a good paper. And uh, I would urge people to access it uh, in the website, American Journal of Psychiatry. Thank you very much. Thank you, Lou. Thanks. For your thoughts, comments, very useful, very powerful. This program has been brought to you by the Diana Foundation, sponsoring colloquia and symposia involving research into the adverse side effects and potential negative public health consequences of steroid-based therapies. The Foundation also provides information and facilitates dialogue between Western physicians, alternative medicine practitioners, patients, and family members regarding the diagnostic treatment and management of pain in women. For more information, visit dianafoundation.com. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.